Welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Teresa Freeman. I hope you are all staying healthy and keeping safe. We are in what feels like day 80 of the quarantine. The Freemans seem to be finding things to keep us busy. A lot of artwork, games, puzzles, and let's face it, a lot of digital consumption. (laughs) Thank you for your continued support of Relatable. We have a real treat for you today. Dan Helfrich, the CEO of Deloitte Consulting, and I had a chance to sit down and talk before all the craziness of COVID-19 started. We met in the Deloitte office near Washington, D.C., and if you listen closely, you may hear an airplane or two or three, (laughs) as we were very close to Reagan National Airport. Dan and I work together at Deloitte, and he is someone that I respect, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to sit down and interview him. During our conversation, you hear about Dan's role as CEO of a practice of 56,000 people, his love of soccer and broadcasting, and we also get a view of his time during middle school and high school. Dan is as real as it gets. He shares great insight that anyone, young or old, can use. Before we start, a brief advertisement for upcoming workshops. Teresa Freeman Associates is sponsoring upcoming teen workshops the first week in May. They're focused on communication and conversation skills. To learn more, check out www.TeresaFreemanAssociates.com. Enjoy this episode. First, I'll just uh, start by how we know each other, because I try to frame or at least give a little context when yep. I interview people. Um, but and you and I have worked together while I was at Deloitte for like quite a few years when you were in the federal space. So that's that's the background of how we got to be connected. And you know, I've always enjoyed working with you and and really been impressed with the way that you've been able to manage the practice and drive decision making. And then even since then, now you've soared to greater heights, and we can <laughs> talk about all of that. But maybe we could first start just with tell our audience a little bit about your current role and what a typical day in the life is, which I know is probably not very typical. But just to give us a little context about where you are today. Sure. So my role is, uh, I'm the CEO of Deloitte Consulting, which is a fun, awesome uh, aggregation of about 56,000 of my teammates uh, all around the world, um, doing fun stuff with clients every day to try to make their lives, uh, their lives better. And you know, I'm fond of saying I feel like the captain of that team, um, and it's an incredibly uh, rewarding uh, responsibility. It's a privilege. It's humbling, and you know my job is to serve those fifty plus thousand people the best way that I can. Typical day. Um, here's what's consistent in a typical day. Okay. There is always exercise, um, and that exercise is almost always before most people wake up. <laughs> there are always <laughs> smoothies. Oh, okay. So Chocolate. if there's one food group for me, it's the smoothie food group. Okay. Um, and there's always interaction with um, my family, whether I'm on the road or not, with all four of my kids and my wife. There's always interaction with somebody or some people outside the firm, whether that's clients or business partners or media. Um, there's always interaction with the more senior leaders in our organization, yeah. people we call partners and managing directors, and there's always interaction with the less senior people in our organization. Um, and that's a fulfilling day for me. Um, those interactions take many shapes and forms, but the variety is very appealing. So that's a big job, being responsible for 56,000 people. And uh, I'm curious if, as you've navigated your career and evolved and taken on more responsibility, did you have specific goals in mind for yourself as 
as you thought about your career and were there certain milestones that you wanted to hit? No. I think that's an important conversation because I, I'm interested in hearing more about that and because yeah. you're someone who succeeded quickly and have found, I think, jobs with a lot of responsibility and a lot of decisional authority. So how, how did that happen if those weren't specific milestones or goals that you had set? Yeah, so it would be disingenuous to say that um, I'm not um, goal-oriented at all. Right. Um, I, But my goals have always been to have the greatest impact I can have on my environment. And that environment is external dimensions and internal dimensions. And, and so what I've been very clear about, and in my mind, this is so mentally freeing, is that um, a, the ambition to hold a particular job, to attain a particular title, to achieve some a milestone in a corporate hierarchy or organizational hierarchy will never occupy a single moment of my time. Um, and I say it's mentally freeing because I see so many people who develop obsessions with um, some definition of success that frankly is A, narrow, B, they don't control it because circumstances and other people often dictate what Right. roles and responsibilities you find yourselves in um, and see that obsession takes away from the person's wellness and joy of life and ability to be in the moment every day. And so um, I, I've been able to keep those things out of my you know, mind. And then, you know, at an incredible firm like Deloitte, uh, you know, the opportunities to lead and get responsibility for things that are of big scale have mm -hmm. found me. It's so interesting because I there's this concept of being tapped for things versus you know hard charging towards something. And it seems like when you're tapped, it, there's like an ease to that versus if you're hard charging and it's like, to your point, it's like, here's the specific goal and I got to get this goal and I got to get this milestone and I got to be this versus what's naturally happening and organic. And to your point about being in the moment and making impact and having value in that moment beyond what you're trying to achieve, I think is really important and hard, I think, for a lot of people to not jump ahead and to think more just how am I going to add value today, which is... No like question. I think it is hard for a lot of people. And for whatever reason, not I had the constitution that that part isn't hard yeah and um again i think that that's it's liberating it's freeing yeah. it, it allows you to not go through the mental gymnastics that so many people torture themselves with right. around how to navigate the organizational or corporate hierarchy that they find themselves in yeah. So I'd like to just take a step back. We're going to meander sort of back and forth. But one of the things that I hope for this podcast is that we have people that are young adults and also people that are less experienced in their career that are in a learning space and they're trying to better understand what's available, what's out there and how do people, uh, someone could look at you and your position and think, uh, well, he's just got a horseshoe, right? That's like <laughs> hanging over his head. And he's got all true. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Um, I'm a Notre Dame fan. Both my parents <laughs> okay. were there. So got the there's the something Irish about there. the lucky yeah. Irish. So I'm curious if you think back to, um, you know, your middle school and your high school time, I like to ask people a little bit about that time period and were there situations or do you remember anything from that time period that either helped form and shape how you are today and the way that you approach things, any challenges or even successes that you think at that time you started to kind of realize who you are and what you want? Sure. So um, I moved around a lot as a child. Um, my dad was in corporate HR at General Electric and happened to move around a lot. And so um, I think I was formed um, partially by being adaptable to new situations, mm -hmm. to um, you know, figuring out how to um, develop relationships in 
places that I didn't have context. And, and that's a lot of what got me to sports at a more serious way because sports was, um, and in particular for me, soccer was um, common equalizing ground and a, a platform where both based on your abilities and the way you interact with the 14 or 15 or 18 or 20 people on your team allowed you to lead and to experience diversity and things that have um, shaped me very fundamentally um, to this day. I would also say I, in middle school and high school, learned to be comfortable not going with the crowd. Mm. So I was, um, my kids might call me socially awkward, <laughs> but I was one of these people who was um, a good athlete. And so I had friendships and relationships with the good athletes. I did well academically. Um, and was in the you know harder classes, et cetera. But socially, I was um, more reserved, less interested in being out um, partying out socially with um, some of those folks. And so I, I found this comfort level that I still think benefits me today of being my own person, of having, relationships with people in lots of different circles of life, mm -hmm. but not feeling like I had to fully immerse myself in one of those or uh, wear a different uniform or disguise or persona that wasn't naturally me. And you do that in middle school and high school and you have right. some tough moments because you sometimes feel outside. Um, but I think that's served me very well in my career. So there's a level of like confidence that it sounds like you have. Where does that come from? How do you, how do you get that? If you're someone that's listening, because that's an assured that's a an assured person to say, I I I'm comfortable in my own skin, and and this is who I want to be, and I'm not necessarily going to change that or you know dilute that on behalf of the group or the construct. So where does that come from? Is that just you were no born idea. that way? Like you're just, because that's innate? If you gave me innate <laughs> versus learned, I would say innate yeah. on that, on that particular, on that particular topic. And, and look, you go through perhaps, you know, little things that you, you know, you feel ostracized by a group or something. And then you take a look three weeks later and you realize it's kind of no big deal and life is proceeding well on most dimensions and so as I accumulated those experiences it probably you know hardened more an innate set of self-assuredness and confidence in my own skin that I, I probably had from a young age. Did you feel you mentioned that you were a good athlete so in terms of and, and academics so I would say on, on those dimensions did, did those things come easy to you right so if you think about from an academic standpoint or even a social or even from an athletic. Tell me a little bit if you remember about either pressure at that time or where you maybe had to spend more time developing and working harder. Or did all of that come fairly naturally to you because you knew what you wanted to accomplish? You know, to uh, well, let's take all three of those, academics, athletics, and social. Yeah. Academics. Uh, came pretty easy to me. Um, but I got into some experiences where I had some great teachers who pushed me into places that um, weren't as natural. Writing was a thing that, you know, I always read a lot and I was fine at math. But in particular in, in high school, I had some great writing teachers who saw some writing skills in me and pushed me to be a be a better writer and to love writing. And um, that was an area, and I have I love writing to this day, um, partially because of that. Um, athletically, it, it's, it's interesting. I was one of those people who, um, in, in an average town, would have been the best athlete. Mm -hmm. But then you start competing in an entire county or a state or a region, or for me, nationally. And inevitably, you go from being the best 
to among the worst. And that's a really interesting, you know, experience. So, and that's, I love that about sports is the more you get better, the more you get put into situations with people that are better than you. And so I experienced being the star and I experienced being the 20th player on a U.S. youth national team that got cut from, you know, ever being on the U.S. youth national team programs again. So those are very, um, very developmental experiences because you experience both the success and adoration that comes from being wildly successful in your more uh, niche environment to ultimately being on the biggest stage and not being good enough. Um, And then socially, I would say um, to this day, I am very similar socially as I was as a middle schooler and high school, which is when I'm comfortable, I'm extroverted. When I am in a situation which in uh, middle school might have been 50 of us on a bus that didn't know each other, and today might be a cocktail reception before a big meeting, I am horrible in those situations. I wanna stare out the window and not talk to anybody on a bus. I wanna hide in the bathroom at a cocktail party because it feels artificial to me, that construct. And for me, socially, I need a construct that feels non-artificial and then I can be extroverted. Longer answer than you wanted. No, you know what is so interesting? And I remember this too, just in working with you, the, the fact that you, you said something earlier about, um, at, le- at least in high school, where you were, you were into your soccer team and you were into your academics and you got some social, obviously, connection with people in those environments and then built those connections and then didn't really need anything else because you were feeding that. And it doesn't sound to me like you're someone that has a lot of FOMO like where you have like fear of missing out, right? You like you're you're someone who's like intentional with your time, knows exactly what you want to do, and the, all the extra, it's like clear it out because totally. yeah. And that's a gift because I have a lot of FOMO and that's those are hours I won't get back, right? So being I think intentional about your time and where you want to spend it is really important and it helps with your efficiency and developing. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh Okay, so you touched on athletics. Let's talk a little bit. Let's like move into college a little bit because you did play college sports. And so given that you were in that big stage at that time and had big dreams, I'm guessing, did you want to be a professional athlete? Tell me a little bit about when you're leaving high school and you're going to that next step. What is it that you wanted for yourself? And, and how um, did... I did not want to be a professional okay. athlete. Now, fast forward it 25 years. Yeah, about 25 years. Would I today? Maybe because the condition of soccer in the U.S. is so much different than it was professionally 25 years ago. So um, 25 years ago, MLS was just starting. Very few U.S. players played in Europe, etc. So no, I viewed um, soccer as a way. I I viewed Division One college soccer as my pinnacle, um, and I wanted. Uh, I had two criteria when I was choosing a college to go to. I wanted a superior academic institution and I wanted a program where um, I felt like they were on the rise and that over the course of a career there, we could go from point B to point A and point A would be materially greater than point B when I showed up there. So based on that criteria, like most uh, recruited athletes, I took a bunch of visits. I looked at, I looked at probably ten schools seriously. Got, you know, re- got interest from hundreds, and ended up choosing Georgetown. Okay, and so during that time, I like that you had these two specific objectives. One of the things, like if, again, as people are listening, I've talked to actually. I talked to the director of Olympic Sport at Duke uh, on this podcast, and we talked a lot about recruiting, and then I just spoke to the executive director of the NCSL, and we talked about So it seems to be a theme right now, but I do think for athletes, in, in terms of what I'm hearing, which I think is really good counsel, is have 
your own interest plan goals first in terms of whether it's academic or what is it that you want out of the experience versus like, can I play there? It's like a different perspective of being intentional about how you're going about it. No question. I also think the gradients of commitment, even once you decide to play a college sport are significant depending on the level of play. So depending on the conference you choose to play in, depending on whether you're choosing Division One versus Division Three, all of those things need to factor into someone's choices because the amount of the amount of your college life that's going to be uh, for which the sport is going to be central to differs pretty widely depending on some of those variables. So how much of a part of it was it your experience there? Huge part of your massive. And a big-time commitment. Massive commitment, massive source of um, learning and development outside the classroom, and absolutely the best source of relationships I've ever had in my whole life. And you're still quite, like, you, you're affiliated with the school. You do a lot with the I school, do. right? And tell me about the fun thing you do with your with, uh I do a lot of fun things, but I do <laughs> I do broadcast all the Georgetown games. I'm a play-by-play person. I my real career dream as a as a high schooler was actually to be a broadcaster. I had a chance to do it, um, and I decided that consulting, for whatever reason, <laughs> sounded better at age 21. And um, but I've always had the passion for broadcasting I've had some aptitude for it and uh, and so yeah for the last 15 or 16 years I've broadcast every Georgetown home game that um, is amazing so and how do you develop that skill so is that like a, did you take a class is that something you practiced or given that it was a potential career interest how do you if someone's interested in that how do they pursue that Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates, your one-stop shop for soft skills development, speaking, coaching, and workshops. If you'd like to hire Teresa, or for information on our upcoming workshops being held in May, visit www.teresafreemanassociates.com for more information. Um, I didn't take a class, um, but I did practice. And so what my wife will tell you, if you were to interview Christy, is that probably on like our second date, I pulled out a like videotape of me in the basement broadcasting a like Celtics Lakers game on tape. Yeah. And she said, I will never talk to this guy again. This is incredibly awkward. But then it worked. Maybe deep down it was a differentiator. (laughs) It it was a different. It was a different. So yeah, so I used to practice um, broadcasting. I I tape tape games and broadcast over them afterwards. And and then it's the kind of thing, and I talk about this with my team all the time, play-by-play broadcasting and consulting are very complementary to one another. And because because you absolutely must prepare. So I have to I have to know, you know, I've got two teams, I have to know the players and the coaches, I have to know some history of how those people interacted with interacted with one another. But who the heck knows what's going to transpire over the course of 2 hours? Right. Who, who Right. What's going to happen that's dramatic? What's going to happen that's controversial? And so this notion I think in consulting in, in most business of how do you prepare but not be scripted? Because you have to be able to react in the moment. You have to be articulate in the moment. Uh, you have to know when your voice should dominate a conversation and when you need to let things play out um, and let people observe them on their own. All those skills are incredibly valuable to leadership in business and in the workplace, and they're incredibly valuable to being a good play-by-play announcer. What I think is really cool is that you have this professional career that you're super energized by that sounds that you love your job and you love all the opportunities that you've had. And then you've also found a way to incorporate this passion in a way that it also seems fulfilling. So the fact that you didn't have to completely exchange out that dream and that you get to still have that as part of your uh, life, I think is really... It's part of my luck. 
Yeah. It is. Yeah. It's well, it's not luck, right? Wouldn't you say it's like there's you have skill and capability, and certainly if you didn't have those things and you hadn't practiced and you weren't prepared, you maybe wouldn't have had that opportunity. Yeah, I. Right. The expression that. What's the expression? That luck is the preparation, prepara- preparation and opportunity yeah. intersecting yeah. or whatever that expression yeah. is. I, I believe that. Yeah. I believe that for sure. From a leadership perspective, you know, you and I share a similar passion. I'm now focused on trying to influence, as I mentioned, those that are almost pre-career to start educating and giving some perspective on what are these key leadership skills that businesses and organizations are looking for how do you develop these skills early so that by the time you're ready you're more advanced and you can hit the ground running and so we have this combined i think interest in intersection around leadership so you've done a lot of talking on this topic i know you've already had some podcasts and you've written a lot and so i'm just curious if you could spend a couple of minutes talking about what are what are the things that you think set apart an extraordinary leader from your perspective as you've developed them, have you seen them? What are some of the key ingredients? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take that from a couple angles. So okay. extraordinary leaders have empathy. Um, extraordinary leaders are exceptional communicators. Um, e- extraordinary yeah. leaders... Um, recognize that their role in life at the time they are leading is to serve the people that are on their team and not vice versa. Like to me, those are, that's what extraordinary leaders do. If you back that up to, um, like let's make that practical. How do you develop skills? What skills are um, sort of, would differentiate people in their teenage years to develop muscles and skills that would help them later? Um, writing is incredibly underrated and undervalued as a skill and um, I see the quality of writing um, frankly in the average person that I run into um, going down mm-hmm. over the course of you know the last 10 15 years and people's ability to um, write crisply to write memorably, to write in ways that in a sea of content that comes at everybody every day makes people pick their heads up and pay attention, that is a very underrated um, skill. And then the other thing that I talk about a lot, um, which is a a way of practicing communicating, is to do improv. I I really believe that improv teaches you the skill that so few have, which is to be such a great listener that you can respond in the moment, be articulate in the moment as things unfold, right? That's what life is about is how you react as things unfold, many of them unexpected. Improv teaches you muscles that you can pull on in lots of areas of your life that is to me um, a very underutilized, under uh, under practice set of skills. That's really interesting. So that one of the things that I'm passionate about is active listening, which is somewhat tied to what you're talking about, yes. and that ability to really set aside your own thoughts, agenda, whatever is getting in the way of that, so that you can really learn and hear and then react. It's it's. I agree with you. It's a challenge, and I think it's also a skill that we're seeing on the decline. So. And I, it's interesting, I've worked with clients that actually bring in improv uh, people to help develop the culture and also help to develop a commonality, but also that thinking on your feet and being able to be vulnerable in front of other people yes. creates this unity where then you feel like it's a place where you all can go from. So yeah. that's really cool. Uh, I do have a question that just came up recently with a client that I'm working with in a coaching capacity. And they are a, they were an exceptional individual contributor. They're an exceptional leader of a 10 to 12 person team. Where they're struggling is that bridge to how do I go from being the person that's all about my team and driving everything for my group and and myself to being part of a broader leadership group 
and having responsibilities at a more macro view and that fine line of like being there for your people but recognizing that you're part of a broader leadership team and your view and your scope has to change and I think that's a hard transition for a lot of people and I'm curious what your perspective is on that or how you yeah I totally agree it's a hard transition for a lot of people but I have a view that I don't hear a lot of people articulate which is I think there's a lot of people that should never make that pivot not because they are intrinsically not going to be good at it, but because they're not going to love it. And there's this notion in many organizations that everyone should be seeking titles that give them the responsibility over more people. And I think there are many people who aren't suited to lead large groups of people because it requires a different mentality and a different mindset and you have to understand that the impact you're going to have on people is more indirect if you're going to be great than it is direct i.e that you're trying to impact people that you might not know at all right you you're trying to impact people that you might see once a month right you're trying to impact people that you'll never meet in person you'll only talk to over the phone like those are, um, in many ways, much more indirect ways that you uh, impact people. And some people, that's not motivating and, and their skill sets aren't suited for that. And so I think in general, we sometimes push people to be large enterprise leaders when that's actually not their highest and best. Uh, use now if you're in one of those roles and you're just getting used to it the key to me is how do you have sensors in your so let's say you're running a hundred person team and let's say there's three layers I've got a five person layer a 20 person layer and a 75 person layer just you know picture a pyramid the key to me is how do I have sensors in all of those layers of people who will tell me what they really think and tell me what the conversation is in the hallways. And you have to go outside of hierarchy to do that. So one of the things I do all the time is I'm not relying on the eight people that quote report to me as my source of insight into what's happening in the organization. I have people at all levels of the organization who I'm spending time with, I'm actively involved in their lives and careers, and they're feeding me stuff that maybe wouldn't get fed to a lot of people in my position. Mm -hmm. And if I'm a new leader who's going from running a 10 to 12 person team to a 100 person team, having that philosophy will help you a lot. It'll also help you feel more relevant because you'll still have people right. at all aspects of the organization that you have a little bit more close connection with. Do you ever feel a conflict between leaders that are more senior than you and what they're expecting from you or what they want a message to be, what you believe that message should be, and then the message you're trying to deliver on behalf of your people? So that conflict of being in that sort of in-between place and how do you, you use the word sensor, which I like, I think it's nuanced. I don't know that there's an exact answer you can give people, but there are times when you have to flex to the leadership side and, and people that are more senior. And then there are times where I think you can be disruptive and say, wait a minute, I, I think, or you know, how do you influence what you are trying to accomplish? So I'm curious, is that an experience you're familiar with? Or, yeah. 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 And you build those instincts and muscles over time. Yeah. Clearly, you don't want to explicitly contradict an important message or policy or perspective that someone, quote, more senior than you has put into the organization. Right. Because then you're being insubordinate. However, what I think you can do is you get a group of people together and you know that there's dialogue about this particular decision that the person more senior senior than you has um, put out there well then create a forum to let people tell you what they think about it mm -hmm. and maybe you can ask some leading questions in that forum 
And then you go back to the senior leader and it's not your voice that you're putting on the table. You're putting the voice of 75 people on the table. And it's a lot harder for the senior leader to ignore that perspective because it's been sort of curated from a large group of people than it is if it's viewed as a one-on-one disagreement in philosophy. I think too, the delivery of that information. So how are you bringing that forward and are you bringing it forward in a way that's palatable versus right. like, you know, you're on a crusade to change something, but here, yeah, I'm speaking on behalf of the people. So this actually ties into an area that I'm super passionate about around soft skills and developing communication, influence, collaboration. So one of the reasons I left the corporate space is I was seeing a lot of decline in this space of soft skills and I was seeing it influence behaviors and performance in a way that it was taking someone who was on a trajectory and then because of a lack of these skills or a huge deficit in these skills they were then losing opportunities either they were losing their job on a very dramatic way or they were just not you know getting opportunities because these skills were never really developed. People spend a ton of time focused on their technical discipline in that technical space. Unless they're inherently or have some ease with the these soft skills, they're stunted. And so I'm now passionate about trying to develop these skills so that they aren't in the way and that they actually are mature enough so that when they get the opportunity, they're ready to go. I'm curious, and you've talked about it a little bit already, but when you think about soft skills in your own career, and then as you see it in other leaders around you, why are they important? And what is the benefit of developing and strengthening these skills? Because 99.8% of the most important things that happen are interactions between human beings. And you can't effectively interact with another human being without good soft skills. And um, you know, machines and technical skills will um, do lots of the heavy lifting. Um, it should do lots of the heavy lifting because quality's up, accuracy's up, efficiency's up. But at the end of the day, all those things are doing is trying to create. Is I shouldn't say trying to is creating moments where individuals have to interact to make choices. And when individuals are interacting to make choices, soft skills win the day. Right. And do you feel like that's something at some point you intentionally developed or did you ever receive feedback on those skills? Or is that something that you talked about muscle and skill development? Is it something you've spent some time on? I have, and certainly, yeah, if I, if I think of feedback I've received, more of it's in the soft skill area than, um, than others. I'll give you an example. Like, I, I got some really good feedback from a couple of mentors that my intensity was intimidating to people, and that the way that I talk, the way that I make eye contact that is... Um, very direct and the efficiency of my interactions was for certain people so intimidating that it prevented them from wanting to bring me um, anything but something they were thought was perfect and so um, and it's interesting right because once people get to know me I'm probably the least intimidating most approachable sort of person that can be but that was really valuable feedback because there were soft skills implications to how I was interacting with people, particularly those that didn't know me as well, that I needed to do some things to lower the intimidation and, and uh, intensity factor. So that's an example for me. If I were to pick one soft skill that I think people struggle with the most, it's conflict navigation if you consider that a soft I skill. Do. Yeah, conflict resolution and navigate, absolutely. Because um, so many of the issues we have is because people are uncomfortable navigating conflict, in particular with people that they have personal relationships with. Mm-hmm. It's really hard for people to disagree with someone who they have a lot of respect for and they have a friendship with in the workplace. 
it's really difficult for people to give pointed direct feedback to someone that they have a high degree of affection towards. And people worry about, boy, what's going to happen to our relationship if we have this hard conversation and the person's going to be mad at me. And um, I, I think people's inability or discomfort to manage conflict in a respectful but decisive way and to give feedback in a respectful but decisive way is one of the great shortcomings of uh, people in the workplace. I think you're right. And I think there's that human condition of, I don't want to be uncomfortable and I don't want the other person to be uncomfortable. And so that drives, to me, that's somewhat fear-based. And then it drives behavior that is a waste of time, right? You're not, you're not moving forward. You're not really helping the other person. I think most people would agree when you sit down with someone and they're honest with you, that's like worth its weight in gold because you're you can then do something with that and so if everyone just came from that place of the intent is good it's positive it's instructive so I agree and it, it, it some of it for me though goes back to even the discussion we we're having about high school like I probably um, and my wife would say this for sure I, I care a lot less about being liked by everyone than most people do I care about being respected by people that I treat them fairly and equitably and I'm clear with them, but I I don't lose a lot of sleep about people not liking me as long as I know the decisions I've made are with integrity, the feedback I've given is um, clear and direct. But I think a lot of people get tripped up because they want to be liked by the people around them. And by the way, I'm not criticizing that. That's a beautiful thing, and I probably could could you know use more of it. Right. But um, well, I think too being self aware. I mean, part of this is I think on the soft skill side, it takes a certain level of I'm willing to be self critical. I'm willing to see where the gaps and the holes are, and I'm willing to spend some time and develop that space. And if it's not where you lean. Right, and you lean more on the technical side, and that's where you're comfortable. It just becomes you start to see this wider and wider yeah. gap, which then can prevent you if you want further responsibility. If you want to lead, these are things that I think are super important. If you'd like to advertise with Relatable, please email us at info at tfreemanassociates.com. One of the things I want to talk to you about um, is hard work. And so my son is 16 and he is an extremely hard worker on the field. So from an athletics perspective, he's super conscientious, gives like 150%. I think in the academic space, we're getting better, but there's not as much of an appreciation or an intensity. And so we've had more probably conflict and discussion mm -hmm. around the importance of that. And I often get this response of, well, you know, so-and-so is just so smart and it comes so naturally and they don't have to study at all, right? There's this sort of this barometer of like, because there's other people out there and it comes so super easy. And of course, it's this like sweeping generalization that nobody is working but him, right? And that it comes so easy, easy to them and, and so like angry and, and, you know, emotional. And so we have these dialogues around, understand that everybody has to put in the work at some point. You know, hard work is a critically important component and ethic to get reward in your own life. And I said, and I, you, I see it on the field, so you know what it is. You know, and so we have this dialogue. I'm just curious um, because of my perspective of you and knowing you and, and working with you. I think you have an extremely strong and hard work ethic. And so I'm curious, how did you cultivate that? Is that something that was you know, taught by your parents, was your, were you self-motivated? Like, would you, I, I would assume you would agree that you're a hard worker. Like, is that a component, do you think, to your own trajectory and being successful? It's, it's interesting, Teresa. I, I don't, I haven't thought about that question a lot. And, and I wouldn't, if you were to say, describe yourself in 10 phrases, hard worker would not have been one of the 10 phrases. Now, I, objectively, I work hard. <laughs> But, but I'm, <laughs> objectively, I work hard, but it's not, it, there's not intention there. I don't, I don't wake up 
and say, I'm going to work harder than everyone right. around me to, but you to get a, ahead. But there's a certain level of outcome and output that you want. What's driving you to deliver in a positive way that yields results? Maybe that's a better way of asking the question. So that's very, I, I guess that's very inherent to me. Like I want to be fit because it makes me healthy and being healthy is better. So I work hard exercising every day. I want um, Deloitte to be the most successful professional services firm in the world and I want the people on my team to have the number one talent experience and so I'm passionate about it and 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 so I want to be the best father in the world and so I very focused on you know interacting with all my kids individually every day and so so for me maybe hard work maybe it's not is because of passion and when I'm passionate about things and I happen to configure my life so I'm only doing things I'm passionate about, that hard work is the natural byproduct right. of the fact that I have passion for everything that I invest myself in. Would you say there have been periods or times in your life you had to work into something that it wasn't entirely joyful? Totally. <laughs> I was terrible at Calculus BC. Okay. That's the one thing. <laughs> it's an example. It's yeah. an example. Right. right. And so And it was uncommonly hard for me to do okay in that class. I hated it. I had no passion for it. But uh I put in the time to um get through it because I probably could put it into a bigger picture that said that's somehow related to other goals you have in life and so you better so you seem like you have like a strong base of resilience like you we didn't really talk about the experience where you said you knew what it was like to be congratulated and adored as a great athlete and then you get to this experience where you weren't selected and and that probably was very difficult for you and so do you have did that experience shape how you have some resilience to say i know i got to dig in here because there's a bigger picture that i'm working towards or after that event and getting cut, how did you deal with that? How did you not quit after that? Like, what was the prevailing thought that got you to continue? And prevailing thought was, I still have a pretty damn good life, and <laughs> yeah. I yeah. have a lot of opportunities in front of me. In that case, in soccer, that are going to be really fulfilling. And so you oh, by the way, I figured out pretty quickly, and this is sort of self awareness. I got cut and wasn't playing anymore because I wasn't good enough. Right, so there's a reality and, to it. And there's a reality to, um, and athletically in particular, but there's a reality to how far you can, you know, take things. And I took that about as far as, I took that about as far as I could and I didn't lose sleep over it. The resilience piece, would you say that's also inherent? Is that something you build over time? Well, I think you build resilience by going through adversity. Right. So, yeah, I think you, so I'd say that's probably more, uh, that's more experiential. Though my guess is that people who have some of the sort of inherent confidence, mm -hmm. um, when they go through adversity, develop resilience in a pretty predictable way. And I would, I would ask People who have arrogance as opposed to confidence don't. Right. And the fear thing, I'm curious, um, and you've talked about this, I think, in other things that I've read around um, your, you've talked about challenges versus failure, and that you're not a big fan of the word failure. So I'm curious, too, about that, the facing fears or facing situations which you don't know the outcome and putting yourself out there. I also think that's where you get resilience and how you get to be better than you were mm -hmm. yesterday. So, are, and I don't know if you have any specific thoughts or experiences you can speak to where you knew this was going to be a moment that was going to inform or help you based on the fact that you were afraid in, in going for something or pursuing something. Because I do think, especially for those that are less experienced, that can get in the way of, of kind of putting, of, you know, putting yourself in a, in a situation where you may be embarrassed or that it may not be a good outcome. Um, 
I mean, I can think of running for student government in middle school and not getting elected. And maybe that's, that's where this all maybe that's where this all <laughs> this all started. But yeah, I would say that that there have been there have probably been a few there have been a few moments like that. But but again, if you're if you're not super tangibly goal oriented as measured by I want to achieve this particular thing. Maybe you don't, maybe I haven't put myself out there on as many ledges saying, I want that, mm -hmm. put me in that, because I haven't been motivated at getting that. You've been more motivated intrinsically by what's happening in the present. Yeah. And, and creating a better outcome, whatever that is. Exactly. Okay. We're close to the end. I could talk to you forever. Maybe you'll let me talk to you again sometime. But when you think about your younger self, so when you think about young Dan, either sort of entering the workforce or even like college, post high school, now with your vast experience, what counsel, what advice would you give him? Is there anything you would tell him that you think would help? Uh, spend more time learning about other cultures. Um, spend more time learning about... Um, people in different socioeconomic groups spend more time with and learning about people who grew up on other continents, spend more time with people from other generations, spend more time with women, spend more time understanding the unique experiences that make up people based on race, sexual orientation, gender identity, age, because that will serve you incredibly well no matter what you choose to do in life. Thank you so much. Thanks, T. You're welcome. That was awesome. Thank you, Dan, for your time and for all of the great words of wisdom. I know I learned a lot in our conversation, and as I've listened back to this interview, I feel like there are so many nuggets of advice that are helpful. I enjoyed getting to know you a little bit more throughout our conversation, and I really liked your story about getting feedback on how people perceived you as somewhat unapproachable and how that was a huge surprise. I think that happens to a lot of us. We aren't always aware of how we are coming across to others. Being open to constructive feedback and applying what you learn is a huge part of maturing professionally. Uh, your insight and perspective certainly will benefit our listeners and really appreciate you sharing that personal story. A special thanks to Missy, my producer on this episode. As a reminder, if you like this discussion, please subscribe and rate Relatable. We are on most streaming platforms, and you can leave a comment on the Relatable website, which is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates. You can also follow us on Twitter and our TFA Facebook page. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable.